Morning. Morning. Let's do it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, that was better than the first service. And it's on video that I said that, so you're welcome. Great job, everybody. Happy New Year. It's great to see you. Uh, I'm Matt, one of the pastors here, Tom, our lead pastor, and his wife Beth are on the way back uh, from vacation, and uh, they'll be back this afternoon, so pray for travel mercies for them. Uh, it is great to see all of you kind of back in action here, back in the new year, New Year's resolutions happening. I had a dear friend of mine said a great thing. She said, you know what? I made one resolution. I just want to have the peace of Christ this year. She said, I'm not going to make a, any other resolutions. And it's funny, though, how when you get that one, the rest of them come with it. So that's our, uh, our prayer for, for each other, uh, for you this year. Um, today we continue our series, 21 Questions. And, you know, sometimes questions come along, you just don't want to answer them. You don't want to be the guy, right? So, you know, like, for example, the one last week that we made Will uh, answer, um, uh, why is sex such a big deal? That was not just philosophical. That was that he was a low man on the totem pole. And uh, so he had to do that one. Um, uh, actually, kidding aside, um, we had asked our student ministry to give us their top three questions. They actually do this all the time uh, with the kids. They kind of do the stump the youth pastor deal. And they said, top three, what's the big deal about sex? Um, where do I find my worth, status, and shame? How do I overcome my shame, which Tom's going to talk about next week? And so this week we addressed this issue. I actually uh, couldn't think of a better person than Will to have tackled that last week. I thought he did a great job. But this week's question, where do I find my worth? What is the status thing all about? Um, I, I think it was in middle school for me that I began to think about my worth. Look, I began to worry about my status. Um, so here's what you had to do when I was in middle school. Back then it was called junior high, seventh and eighth grade. We rode horses to school. No, it, was just, it wasn't that long ago. But, um, but in junior high, here's what I had to do to have status. I had to have a giant metal belt buckle. Huge, big silver belt buckle with like a longhorn steer head on it. And I, I lived in Miami. I lived in South Miami. There was no reason that we should be associated with this. But for some reason, that was the thing. So you had a big belt buckle and your belt had to have your, your initials branded on the back, MCL on the back. And then, um, so I had to wear, I went to this private Christian school and they had this dress code, right? And for some reason, you could not wear jeans, you could not wear denim, but you could wear corduroy. Now, I don't know where they found Jesus' handbook on, you know, a, a proper attire, but somewhere in there, it says, no denim, but corduroy is okay. And so, you had to have the corduroy jeans, things, and the belt, and then the corduroys had specific leg types. There were boot legs, and then there were these skinny fit things. I guess today they're skinny jeans, but we had those back then, and they were, and so, if they were big, if you wore boots, which you also didn't need, but if, you know, if you wanted to be identified and important and cool, you had to have boots. So, that's what you had to do, and then I had the... Uh, <laughs> The part down the middle with the feathered, feathered hair, this feathered technique to make your hair look like feathers, and, and this guy named Sean Cassidy had had it, and so we all had to have it. That was a thing. And, and to get this feathered look, they had to sort of rip your hair out. I mean, they had these scissors that were like dull scissors. They were bad scissors, and maybe that's how they figured out the hair look, and they didn't want to buy new scissors, so they just said, use them. And, and they sort of rip your hair out, and then you'd have, so you'd have the feathered, the part, the belt. There was literally, in our school and others, a list, a, a, a popularity list that went around. It was a written for distribution ranking of popularity. And to get on this list, it, it involved things like belt buckles and corduroys and bootlegs and feathered hair and whatever else, sports and this and that. And the other thing, to get on this list, 
Well, then I went off to college. Um, I studied advertising in college. So we took a deep dive into where people find their worth, where people find their status. And part of the, one of the things you study in advertising is, is what's called market segmentation. Uh, demographics, firmographics, uh, behavioral studies, and the holy grail, psychographics. So demographics is, is simple. It's just age, gender, where you live, stuff like that. Firmographics is the organizations you're attached to, so where you work, the clubs you're a part of, uh, who, those kinds of things, who you hang out with, um, associations, behavioral habits. This was amazing. Even back then, how detailed they monitored your behavior. They could tell you what you were going to do, man. Uh, Where did you shop? What did you buy? When did you buy it? When did you get up in the morning? When did you go to bed at night? When did you eat? All of that kind of behavioral study was a part of marketing. But the biggie, the beauty, the gold standard was psychographics. The money is in psychographics. Because you know what that is? Your attitudes, beliefs, social class, and the lifestyle you seek to maintain. That is where the Ferraris reside, my friends. That is where the body manipulation techniques reside. That's where the expensive trips and all those kinds of things live. That's where the $5 t-shirts sell for $50. It's because they're attached to who you are. You're not buying a t-shirt, you're buying a brand, and that brand is supposed to represent your worth. And there are scales for the way they price these things. So when you go to the grocery store, you buy a necessity, groceries, you know, food, you go to Home Depot, there are markups on these things, and, and pretty marginal for grocery stores, sometimes it's only a few percentage points. Home Depot, maybe it's a little more, you go to a restaurant to eat out, you're paying for an experience, you're paying for convenience. Maybe uh, the markup on the food is 30 to 40%, you walk over to the bar, the markup's 90%. Why is that? I don't think it's just because people like to get drunk. I think it's because it's attached to your identity. There's status in it. There's status in those labels and the kinds of drinks we have and everything else. They have tapped into your psychographics, that with which you want to be associated, that lifestyle, that persona that they have identified in the brands of those things. Marketers love psychographics, by the way, because it's where you find your worth and therefore you are willing to pay anything for it to get it. You will borrow money. You will put it on a credit card. You will finance it far beyond your means. You will quietly, secretly, and I've seen this happen, go behind the curtain and ask your, your friends or your family to, go, to give you money so that you can maintain that status, that image, that impression of self-worth. In the 80s, material things were where we found this self-worth deal. Uh, They got the self-worth markup. That's what I call it, the SWM. In the 80s, it was material things. It It was, you know, status. It was putting on a veneer. It was pretending to be somebody you weren't. You know, if you look good, you feel good. That was a Saturday Night Live sketch. There was a guy uh, named Billy Crystal who played this character, and he would say, if you look good, you feel good. That was the 80s. Greed was good in the 80s. But then the 90s, which was my generation t- uh, to really start caring and getting deep, was, was the rebellion against that, right? 
So what was the SWM for that generation? Uh, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana brought, brought to town, uh, brought to the culture this rebellion against that veneer, uh, that artificiality, that pursuit of vain things. And they came wearing flannel t-shirts. And so flannel t-shirts got the SWM. They got the self-worth markup. And now it's that thing that farmers used to buy at, at Walmart uh, sold at Macy's for 100 bucks because they tapped into your, your deeper self. It was a good rebellion against greed and materialism, but was it the thing in which you should find your worth? Turn of the century, not caring wasn't good enough. That was the postmodernists. that was my guys. We, we don't care, we don't care. Well, not caring wasn't good enough. You need to care about something. And we, uh, we adopted the environment, we adopted the planet. George Bush, Al Gore, the big debate, going green. That's what got the SWM at the turn of the century, the self-worth markup is being attached to being green. Whatever that took, whatever that cost. Is it good to be green? Is it good to be a good steward of the planet? Of course. Is it where you find your self-worth? So I was chatting with some guys this week about what it is today, and here's what I think it is. I think it's summarized in the negative in that phrase, fear of missing out. The positive of that is the need, the value of, the connection to experiences, adventures, being a part of something rich and profound and energizing, uh, inspiring, significant. You want to be one of those people in the People Are Amazing video. Finding your best possible place in the grand narrative of life. I think that's what it is today. For all to see, by the way, which is what social media has helped us with. Present my best self, my most adventurous self. Give me a presence, give me a persona, give me an identity that I can post to the whole world. Fear of missing out gets self-worth markup today. But you know, at a deeper level, underneath these things are a lot of good things. I don't mean to say that all these things are not worthwhile. There's a lot of things that lay underneath Um, that are not obviously selfish or vain or greedy. Let me give you some. Fighting for justice. What if you find your worth in fighting for justice? Maybe you're a lawyer. Caring for others. Raising children. Creating art and beautiful things. Achievement. Uniqueness. Being unique and different. Intelligence. Innovation, competition, peacemaking. Heritage, where you came from. These are the things we find our identity in. These are the things we find our worth in. These are wonderful things. If your child grew up to say, pursue caring for others or fighting for justice, you'd be proud of your child and rightly so. The question is, are even these things the place in which you can find your intrinsic value? These things that can be taken away, these things that are connected to your experiences and your social historical moment that can come and go, are they the place to find your worth? Even them. Or can they become themselves distractions, addictions, and idols? You can tell where someone finds their worth by looking at what they think is worthwhile. And how do you find that? How they spend their time, their talent, their money, their emotional energy. That is what we marketers 
can tell you is what you think is worthwhile. So, as we go through these 21 questions, we've said we want to answer these from the life and teaching of Jesus. And we're going to do that today. We're going to answer it in Jesus' words and in his life. And I want to start by looking at this painting for a moment. Just take that in. Look at the faces. This painting is called The Virgin. It was painted by a man named Abbot Anderson Thayer in the early 20th century. That is Mary, and in her right hand is Jesus, and in her left hand is his friend John. Do you ever think of them like that? Do you ever imagine Jesus as a boy walking through a a prairie somewhere with his mother and his friend on the way to something, her having to hold their hands so they don't run off? I'm going to talk about that little boy, John, for a minute, the one in Mary's left hand, the one with the red cloak. John would come to be known as John the Baptist. John had some status in life. First of all, his parents were descendants directly, both of them, from the high priest Aaron during the founding of the nation of Israel. Their high priest, Aaron, was their great, 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 great grandfather, his, John's. So he had high priestly heritage. He had status in his, in his culture, in his cultural moment, in his community. But there was more about him. Uh, do you remember, did you know that he came into the world not unlike Jesus did? His father, Zechariah, was approached by an angel and given a divine prophecy that his wife, who was in menopause, would get pregnant and have a child. And that that child would fulfill a prophecy and be a forerunner of the Messiah. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Uh, he didn't believe the angel. He gave the angel some smack. And so God shut his mouth until the baby was born. Now, some of you women are out there going, wait a minute, that's a thing? That can happen? Um, <laughs> I would imagine uh, that this gave him time to th- ponder what he knew to be true as a man after the high priest of Israel, about the prophecies of the forerunner to Christ. So that happened to him before it happened to Jesus. He was older, it happened before him. A few months later, six months into the pregnancy, Mary comes to her relative Elizabeth, who is John's mother. She comes to her to tell her her story. Same story, except her son is the Messiah. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary comes to tell her the beautiful news and it says that John leapt in her belly. They were close, this Jesus and John. You got friends like that? So fast forward, they grew up together doing things like that. And John made a name for himself before Jesus. John was the ultimate anti-hero He was this dude who had this high priestly heritage, but he stripped himself of all earthly things and he went out into the wilderness and he wore camel skin, you know, for clothing and he ate honey and and locusts, it says. And then he preached this message of repentance, meaning he told everybody what was wrong with them and how they had departed from God and how they needed to return to God. And then he baptized them. All right, now I want you to imagine for a minute 
this is you. You're in the city there. You're in Jerusalem or wherever you are. You're around Galilee. And you hear, oh, there's this guy. He's out in the wilderness wearing camel skin and eating bugs and honey. And, I'm, and, and if you go out there, he will tell you how big a loser you are and then baptize you. Load the camels. Let's go. And they did. Old and young, rich and poor, people of status, people that were nothing, the crowds began to grow and they began to come out. He was the deal, man. He was top of market. He was out there in the wilderness doing his thing and he had power and he had influence. Kings were listening to him. He made a name for himself. But then one day, Jesus walks up. His dear friend. And he walks through the crowd, makes his way to the front, and he says, John, my brother, I need you to baptize me. And John knows what that means. So John says something amazing. He says, ha, ah, my dear brother, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. But he baptizes him nonetheless. Jesus goes off and begins his ministry. And you know what happens to John? The crowds leave. His heritage means nothing. The power of his communication means nothing. His reputation, all of that, begins to to disappear and his crowds begin to dwindle until only the most loyal remain. And they make an observation. They notice that the crowds have left him for Jesus. And they confirm about it one day. It says this, John chapter 3. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. He's not Jesus the Baptist. You're John the Baptist. That's your identity. And then they say this, and all are going to him. Not some, not you're losing a little bit of market share. They are all leaving you, John the Baptist. You're losing your identity. You're losing your standing. And then John the Baptist, as a regular human being, says one of the greatest things in human history in that moment that echoes into eternity about what real authority and standing and worth is. He knows that he is not first John the Baptist. He is John, the child of God. The servant of Jesus, the Messiah. So he replies and says this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Not one thing. Not status, not power, not fame, not beauty, not wealth, nothing. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride, you see, is the church. And Jesus is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man who stands and hears him, doesn't resent him, doesn't envy him for his beautiful bride. The one who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
I have fulfilled my role. I am at peace with my God. And do you know what happens after this moment? John fades into history. His story comes to a tragic end. He gets tied up in a conflict with a ruler. He calls out the divorce that the ruler has. The second wife wants him dead. His daughter comes to dance before him one day. He gets drunk. He loves the dance. He says to his daughter, tell me anything you want and I'll grant it. She goes back to her mother. She says, what do you want? She says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that's the end of John's story. Jesus is recorded to have wept twice in the Bible. Once is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other is when he heard that John died. That is the tragic end of this man. But not tragic to you and me because of what he did. So John ends and Jesus' ministry begins and I want to turn to him. We turn to him in a defining moment in his history, in his ministry with his mother, uh, with the mother of two of his closest disciples. James and John, their nickname was the Sons of Thunder. I'm not going to lie, that's a pretty cool nickname. These were like two of his right-hand men. They were two of his closest, closest disciples. And later in Jesus' ministry, after he had established his standing, and after people began to surround him, and there began to be a power shift in the culture in his direction, she began to sort of read the tea leaves and say, this guy's going to take over, man. He's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to get the crown, and I want to be right there. I want my boys in there with him. Self-worth. Where do I find my identity? So she goes to him. Totally brazen, she goes to him and she says, hey, Jesus, I know you're about to take over, you're going to be king, so I just have one request. You know my two boys, they're your favorites, you know it, James and John, sons of thunder, so here's my my request. When you become king, would you just give them a seat at the royal table? But preferably, the best seat, on your left and your right. You see what she was asking? You see what she was caught up in, distracted by? And then Jesus gives this fabulous response to her and to the disciples. He says, my dear woman, you have no idea what you're asking. They don't want to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. They don't want to go where I'm going to go. And then he gathers them all together for a little lesson in true status, in true worth, in true identity, and in true leadership what it really means to be a king. In Matthew 20, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man, that's Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you understand what just happened there? Why would the creator of the universe at the right hand of the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, wonderful counselor, divest himself of his glory. 
Why would he restrain his army in order to be nailed to a cross outside on the town garbage heap for crimes he didn't commit, surrounded by thieves and beggars? Why would he do that? I'm going to tell you why. For you. For you. Why? Because from the moment God conceived you, you were imprinted with his image and therefore intrinsically value, valuable eternally and infinitely forever to the God of the universe. That is where you get your value. That is the answer to the question. You have value, you have worth, not because you're glib or because you're handsome or beautiful or successful or powerful or because you, 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 you finished Iron Man in a record time or whatever it is. That's not why you have worth. You have worth because you were spun from the fingertips of the God of the universe and you bear his image. And there's no but. Period. So I want to end today by reading a psalm to you that you might have heard before if you've been around the church very long. It's Psalm 139 from King David. It's very interesting though. King David writes this psalm. Uh, King David was an impressive guy. He was as, as successful as worldly people get. He, he had all the trappings of the worldly success. And he was also uh, one of the most broken and corrupted. This king of Israel, the most powerful man in the world at the same time, abandoned his troops on the battlefield, took the wife of one of his most loyal commanders, brought her into his bed, and then had the commander murdered to cover it up. David had things to hide from God. If God were angry at him, David needed to hide some things. And yet he wrote this psalm. So I want you to hear it and I want you to put David in your mind. There is nothing so great in this world that it is more valuable than this and there is nothing so corrupted that you are or that you have done that can overcome this, the beauty of this and who you are. So hear this as I read it for yourself because God didn't just write the scriptures through the people to the people that he was writing them to. He wrote them to you. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That sounds terrifying if you're David. That sounds terrified if God's looking for a reason to be angry at you. If you're not worthwhile, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Now you're thinking right there, David, David's depressed. <laughs> David's terrified. David's discouraged. David's feeling imprisoned by God. But listen to what he says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's with the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me uh, be, uh, be night, even the darkness shall not be dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And here it comes. Hear this for you, please. Because this is the answer to the question. For you formed me, O God. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That's why you're worthwhile. Because when you go to bed, when you wake up, when you succeed, when you mess up, you're still with him. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus was the open door. He was the portal. If you, if you let him in, he kicks the gate down of your failures and your struggles. He breaks the shackles that are the death that is imminent in your life. He takes the blindfold off that is the dark, wandering, shifting sands of the world that's trying to tell you what makes you worthwhile. And he lets you see who you really are. That's what Christ came to do. And that's why he divested himself of everything for his masterpiece. And that is you. So all of life is imitation. Don't let anybody tell you different. We tend to think that we are these autonomous creatures, self-determining, completely unique. The reality is we're all imitators. We are all uh, inescapably, uh, irretrievably affected by, formed by our experiences, our context, our culture, our relationships. It's unavoidable. But it's also divine. You were made to imitate one person, and that's God. And to do it, and here's where the unique part comes, within the context of your gifts and your abilities as you apply them to your experiences. Then you know what to do with wealth and power and fame and beauty and talent and Ferraris and everything else. Because they become tools in your hands and you know where they fit. J.R.R. Tolkien said it this way, the chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase, according to our capacity, our knowledge of God by all the means we have and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. Let's pray. Lord God, with my brothers and sisters, we pray that you would reveal to us all of the distractions, the idols, the addictions, the things that we hold on to that are lesser, that are means to an end, that should be tools in our hands or should be let go altogether. We pray that you'd reveal those to us. We ask that Jesus 
if he has not, would come into our hearts, kick down those gates, tear off those shackles, remove that blindfold so that we might see the masterpiece that you see. For your glory, you have sought to reveal our glory. For that, we praise you and we thank you and we pray with St. Augustine, may our souls never rest until they arrest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.